Father, we pray that you would give us courage. Not many of us, thankfully, as far as we know, are called to be martyrs. But we thank you for this story of the first martyr. We pray that it would give us courage to face whatever trials you have in store for us as we name Christ our Lord. We pray this in his name. Amen. There are a number of mysteries, a number of riddles hiding behind this lengthy speech. One of the most obvious ones that might be in your head right now is, why is it so long? Why does Stephen spend so much time? And why doesn't Luke, you know, abbreviate this? Remember, papyrus is expensive. Why is this speech the longest one in the book of Acts. Why not give more airtime to Paul or to Peter or to one of the other apostles who were also martyred for the name of Christ? Why does Stephen get so much play in these passages? And another one that's probably bouncing around in your mind is, how is this speech relevant to the question that's being asked? You know, you maybe got this sense as Eric was reading this kind of question in the back of your mind. Where is Stephen going with this? You could tell when somebody, you ask somebody a question after church or in a water cooler conversation and, and they, you know, they say, well, when I was seven. And you get this kind of in your head, this expectation, oh, this is going to be longer than I thought it was going to be. Where is this, where is this going? Maybe you felt that way somewhere along the lines in Stephen's speech. Why is Stephen answering the accusation in this particular way? number of other riddles as well, but those two are kind of those big forest-level forest level riddles. There's a lot of, you know, looking at the leaves that we could do. But those big uh, macro-structure kinds of riddles that we might wonder about with this speech. And the solution to those riddles is peppered throughout the passage. There are a number of phrases that Luke includes which helps us to start to think about the significance of this passage within the overall history of the church and for the book that Luke is writing. For example, just uh, turn back in your bulletin to the first uh, section in chapter 6. Phrases like we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Or in verse 13, they set up false witnesses. And look what the false witnesses said. This man never speaks, ceases to speak words against the holy place and the law. At the end, too, maybe you got a feeling of deja vu when Stephen says things like, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit and do not hold this sin against them. There are a number of phrases like that that are peppered throughout the passage in which you get this feeling, I've heard this before, and that's because you have. If you're familiar with the gospel narratives, if you're familiar with the book of Luke or Mark or John, you've heard those phrases before because these precise things are things that Jesus did or were done to Jesus or that Jesus said or were said about Jesus. And that's the solution to our riddle. Why did Stephen have to die? And why do we receive so much attention in the, in the scriptures to Stephen? It's because 
Stephen looks and acts and speaks like his master Jesus Christ, and the world cannot abide it. Stephen is a soldier of the cross, and he knows that that means. It doesn't mean arms and armory. It doesn't mean swords or guns or political maneuvering. It means that he conforms his whole life to the lifestyle of Jesus, and as a result, subverts the present world order. So as we consider this significant passage, we need to consider how Stephen pictures for us the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. We have here a mirror image, a, a dim reflection of what Jesus himself endured for our sakes. Stephen becomes like his master. We're going to look at four ways in which Stephen images or reflects his Savior, his Lord, Jesus Christ. First, we're going to look at the fact that Stephen is a servant. Second, Stephen is a prophet. Third, Stephen is rejected. And finally, considering if, however briefly, Stephen is glorified with his master. First, Stephen is a servant. Like Jesus, he did not come, he did not preach, he did not act in a manner that to, to be served, but to serve. What made his life what it is, is the fact that he owns this call from Jesus to wash the, his, the, the other's feet, to serve the other, to serve one's neighbor. It's not in this passage, but if you uh, have time to this, uh, this day to remind yourself to read through Acts 6, you'll see that Stephen is set upon this mission as a result of being an acknowledged servant. One of the, uh, in the previous passage, the church appoints men who have shown themselves to be full of grace and truth and particularly full of the gift of serving others and have appointed them deacons. And, P and Stephen here is a deacon. He is appointed to that office to serve. And what that means is, is he's recognized, even before this passage, and this passage, in fact, assumes the fact that Stephen is a good servant. He is excellent at this. He excels at serving other people. And this passage picks up on that as well. Notice in verse 8 what Stephen is about doing, the, the circumstances within which this conflict arises, is one in which Stephen, full of grace and power, is doing great wonders and signs among the people. He's like his master. Jesus, the king of heaven and earth, comes down not to be served but to serve, and he does so in two ways. Okay? In Scripture, we find service often Cor correlating two different kinds of activity, speaking and doing. And particularly in biblical times, what we find is that that act of doing, that, that act of physically serving another one's needs comes through signs and wonders. So Jesus, he goes out and he preaches a message. The kingdom of God is at hand. And he preaches it alongside doing signs and wonders. Signs and wonders that demonstrate what the kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of God is at hand. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, it comes with the healing of the sick. It comes with miraculous gifts. 
It comes in such a way that the lame now leap for joy. And Stephen, who has been filled with the same spirit, the spirit of Christ, is doing just that. He's going out, he's teaching, and he's serving the community. He is an other-centered person. What is it like to be a servant? To be a servant means to be dedicated to the happiness of other people. It means being other-centered, and Peter is a servant in this respect. He is, he is serving not only God, but in serving God, he is also overflowing in service to the surrounding countryside. He's serving those who are around him. Some of you who are in perhaps a service industry, whether that industry is you know, making sandwiches or standing behind a counter and selling things, or uh, I spent many a year uh, crunching and squeezing out tuna fish juice, which is a wonderful job to have. Uh, if you've been in the service industry, you, you know some of the trials and also some of the joys of that industry. You know what it's like because your happiness is bound up with somebody else being happy with your work. Right? There are two types of servants. Right? There's the type of servants who, who serve because they have to serve, and there are the type of servants who find their greatest delight in making other people happy. And that's the best kind of servant. The best kind of service is that which offers service because you delight in delighting other people. This is Jesus' perspective. It's Stephen's perspective as well. They live for the other. And Stephen goes about the countryside doing signs and wonders not to promote his own glory, but to serve Christ and to serve those whom Christ loves. You might be wondering, how can that kind of activity result in a death? It doesn't seem like the kind of thing that you would be accused about. It doesn't seem like the kind of thing that would generate anger or animosity. A lot of that's because we live in a very, still in a very Christian influence culture. We get service. We don't live in a highly hierarchical culture. We don't live in a power-centered culture anymore. We're actually suspicious of power. But at the time, in, in, in the Roman world, which still believed in a power-centered structure, or you see this overseas as well, you wonder, why is ISIS after people who are doing humanitarian aid, why do they execute those who are there to serve the masses, the crowds, the lowly, the orphan, the widow? They're not preaching the gospel. They're not doing anything other than just helping other people. Why trap them? Why hold them? Why torture them? Why execute them? It's a very simple truth. And it's one that's peppered throughout the scripture. Service, true service, other-centered service, which finds its glory in serving God and its greatest good in serving one another. Truly other-centered service is subversive. It's subversive. It, it flips the culture, particularly power-centered cultures. It flips them on their head. And we see that in this passage. What happens 
when the apostles, inevitably happens when the apostles go out to serve others and they do miraculous signs and wonders for the good of the people and the crowds love them for it, who's most threatened by that? The priests, the scribes, those in power, and Caesar. And we have a word to describe it in this passage. They are filled with jealousy. The world can't abide someone who is a, 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 the popular servant, somebody who's truly other-centered, who truly loves the other person. And so Stephen finds himself at the crosshairs of those filled with jealousy at the fruitfulness of his service, just like his master, Jesus Christ. If you're in a situation, you're wondering how to change the ethos of my workplace, of my school, of, of the environment within which I operate. If you're, you're frustrated that your friends, you kind of look around at your friends and you're thinking they're kind of all jerks, they're bullies maybe, or at your workplace and you feel like this, this cutthroat environment. It's dangerous, but remember, service is subversive. Service changes the way people think about the areas in which they operate. Second, the second way Stephen is like his master, Jesus Christ. We need to spend a little bit more time on there, on this one. Jesus, uh, Stephen is a prophet. And if that strikes you as a strange thing to say, he's nowhere identified here as directly identified here as a prophet. Uh, what's, what's going on? You have to remember what a prophet is. The normal way we kind of, in our popular culture, think about a prophet is that a prophet is a kind of foreteller. He tells the future, right? That's what a prophet does. A prophet is a prophet because they tell the future. And of course, in the Bible, what we, do, what we have is a lot of prophets who tell the future. But what we need to understand is, biblically speaking, that is a secondary job of the prophet. The primary job is not telling the future. The primary job is telling the truth, particularly the truth that God would have the people know in these circumstances. So the prophet is not primary, primarily a foreteller, but primarily a foreteller. He tells it like it is, and sometimes tells what will be. Okay? So that's the job of a prophet. A prophet is ordained by God to bring the presence of God into the midst of the people and to speak to, from God to the people in a more or less direct manner. It is word from God. That's what a prophet does. And it becomes increasingly clear as this passage works out that this is precisely how Stephen is thinking about his own ministry and also the ministry of Jesus Christ. So at the beginning, Stephen is full of grace and power, as we've seen, doing uh, signs and wonders. He's, uh, verse 10, he's filled with the wisdom of the Spirit with which he is speaking. Now, of course, we know that the Spirit is still at work, it's still at work within the church. But what Luke is referring to here and the language that he uses is particular to this time period. This is similar language that you would find for identifying prophets, New Testament prophets. New Testament prophets are particularly filled with the Spirit and they do signs and wonders and they speak a direct word from the Lord. They don't preach, or they do preach, but they don't just preach. They speak directly what they hear from God. 
And Stephen, like other prophets, receives this spirit, this appointment by the spirit. In fact, the language, again, reminds us, if you've read the book of Mark, it should remind you, you should be getting a little deja vu of Mark 4. Jesus, before he begins his public ministry, is, in, is filled by the spirit for preaching and the doing of signs and wonders. The same spirit empowers Stephen. And so Stephen goes forth as not just a deacon, but a, 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 a prophetic deacon. He has two offices. He's a deacon and he's a prophet who speaks the word of God and does signs and wonders. There's another indication that, Peter, uh, that Stephen is a prophet here. It's the last verse of chapter 6. Uh, that, that little phrase that the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Again, there's so many ways in which we can misunderstand what's going on because we import our own culture and our own ideas into an ancient text. When we hear something like that, his face was like the face of an angel, we think of like a baby face or like a, that baby looks like an angel, like sweet, right? Beautiful, peaceful. Stephen means, uh, Luke means almost the opposite. His face was like the face of an angel. That, and remember that when angels appear in Scripture, they are terrifying. The shepherds cower in fear. John himself, a prophet, cowers in fear when he sees the angel of the Lord. To have the face of an angel in the Old Testament and in the New, we see it with Moses as he comes down from the, um, the mountain. We see it in the New Testament in the transfiguration and other kinds of uh, events. To have the face of an angel is, is to say that divine power is shining through Stephen. Stephen has dwelled in the presence of God, a God who doesn't, is not limited to tent or to temple. He has dwelled in the presence of God and is reflecting the glory of God into the present situation. Stephen's face shines like an angel. It's an indication that he's a prophet and that he's going to speak truth from God to the people. And it's at this point where we get into the bulk of the sermon. The bulk of, of Stephen's sermon is the truth that he speaks. And we got our second riddle here. Why does Stephen give a kind of history of Israel? And why is this history worthy of killing him? There's a disconnect, perhaps, between the speech and the question. Notice that Stephen is there. Stephen is on trial for two things, for preaching against Moses and for preaching against the temple. So this is a trial. It's, a, it's not a formal trial. It's a trial by mob. But this is a trial, and the language that's used here is trial-like language. So accusers have been brought forward, and there are witnesses... And the accusation is Stephen has been preaching against Moses and the temple. And what you expect in a typical trial situation is for Stephen to answer those objections, to defend himself. Stephen is the defendant. So the kind of speech he needs to offer is a defense. Well, you misunderstood what I said. That's not what I meant. We need to understand the subtleties of the distinction between the old and the new. That's the kind of speech that you expect Stephen to be uttering right now. 
But he doesn't do that. He does something completely different. He gives a history of Israel in judicial tones. What is Stephen doing? What is he about? What's his purpose? Why does he say what he say, says? Those are good questions. What Stephen is doing is he's turning the tables. Stephen is in the defense. That's what's expected. But what Stephen does is he says, the time of my defense is over. You've rejected my defense. I have already spoken the truth to you. I have already reasoned with you in the marketplace and at the synagogue. I have already preached to you the power of the Holy Spirit and the superpower of Jesus Christ who, who has come and who has, who has superseded all of the Old Testament uh, institutions that were offered there. We've already done that. And you have rejected it. And you've not only rejected it, you've doubled down and brought false witnesses against me. I am not the one who needs to defend myself. It is your turn. Stephen turns this trial on its head and begins to accuse the judge, his judges, of being wicked, unrighteous servants. And he does this in a number of subtle ways. He does this by, by giving a, a kind of a prosecution speech that is designed to, to gain sympathy and to gather sympathetic hearers. Why the history of Israel? Why this lengthy history, uh, which we're not going to be able to explore the details, why this lengthy history of what happened to Israel? What Stephen is doing is he's saying, I'm one of you. I am one of you. I, I, our fathers rejected the appointed one. Our fathers sinned against Moses. He, he, is gener he is generating sympathy by saying, I'm an Israelite. I'm a Jew. I know my history. I know my tradition. I am rooted in it. And, and then he subtly implants in this kind of typical and general and fairly inoffensive speech, he subtly plants the accusation that will come at the end in verse 50. He's saying, you know, in our history, there is a history of rebellion, which I'm part of. I'm implicated by, because our fathers rebelled in the wilderness. Our fathers rebelled. Our patriarchs rebelled against Joseph. The mob, the crowd, rebelled against Moses. There is a strong history of rebellion in our midst. We always resist the appointed one of God. We need to see that about ourselves. We need to see that we resist the appointed one. We need to see that we resist God's truth and we reject the one anointed as his servant. We have to understand our own history and Stephen is doing this. He switches the tables. Though he knows it's dangerous to do so, it's always dangerous to accuse a judge. It is not recommended, right? Don't go after the judge. But Stephen does it knowing the risks because he is a prophet. And it's the job of a prophet to warn disobedient people that they are headed for disaster. He is doing this because this is their last chance. They have rejected the wisdom of the Spirit. They're rejecting Stephen as we speak. They're rejecting the prophet Stephen and they're rejecting the prophet Stephen because they have rejected 
Jesus Christ. They must be warned. This is the last moment. So Stephen doesn't defend himself. He sacrifices himself so he can proclaim truth to the crowd that they might repent and turn and follow the appointed one. Which brings us to the third way in which Stephen is like his master when he does this. When he moves from healing people to prosecuting God's covenant lawsuit against wicked rulers. When he does the work of the prophet and he condemns sin, he is rejected by men. Stephen is rejected. And you'll notice in this passage, he is rejected in a manner very similar to the way his master is rejected. Luke is going out of his way to draw direct parallels between Stephen's history and Christ's history. Stephen's life and Christ's life. Stephen's death and Christ's death. So just as Christ, when he died, he died because false witnesses were coerced into giving testimony. So Stephen is condemned on the testimony of false witnesses. As Jesus died, though filled with the power of the Spirit, Stephen dies filled with the power of the Spirit. Even the words are similar. At his death, Stephen, rejected by the people, asks that they be forgiven calls out to Jesus, receive my spirit. He sees the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. This language is straight out of the Gospels. What's happening to Stephen as he is rejected, as he is tried, and as the crowds are enraged, and a way of escape is not provided, and so he is killed by the mob, this has already happened. It happened to Jesus Christ. Stephen is rejected not because he did anything wrong. It's not that he made the wrong play. It's not that he should have been more sensitive or more sympathetic. It's not that Stephen should have done more arguing. He he should have maybe done more works of charity. Stephen did all of those things, and it still brought him to the point of trial, of rejection. Stephen didn't do anything wrong. He got into this mess because he did something wrong. Stephen got into this mess. He got into this position because he honored Jesus Christ as Lord, and that will not stand. Stephen is rejected because Christ was rejected. Stephen isn't rejected because of what Stephen did. He's rejected because he's modeling what Christ did. Stephen is an image of Christ the subversive service that Christ offers, the truth that Christ proclaims, the condemnation of the world which Christ represents on the tree. He is an image of all of those things. He's reflecting Jesus Christ, and what they hate about Stephen is precisely what they hate about Jesus. And brothers and sisters, if the world hates us, that's why they should hate us. They shouldn't hate us because we're bullies. We shouldn't be bullies. We shouldn't be nosy. We shouldn't be meddlesome. Peter has this phrase in 1 Peter 4 that if you are rejected for the sake of righteousness, 
you will receive glory. If you're a murderer or a thief or a meddler, if you're a bully or annoying and you're rejected, that doesn't receive glory from God. What receives glory from God is being rejected because you name the name of Christ and have served as Christ served, loved as Christ loved, spoken as Christ spoke. And that is precisely where Stephen is. Sometimes we can get rejected, we can get persecuted, and we can think, should I have done something different? Should I have taken a different course of action? Maybe if I had been, maybe if I hadn't said that at that time, I wouldn't have gotten rejected. If you name the name of Christ, if you believe what Scripture says, if you believe that the Bible is true, there will come a time when you are rejected because of what you believe. And there's no soft-pedaling it. It's antagonistic to the way the world works. The world hates it, and there's nothing you can do about it other than proclaim to them that Jesus Christ is Lord, and you will follow him. Here I stand. I can do no other. We do it winsomely. We do it lovingly. We do it with works of service not for our own credit, but for the credit of Christ. But it will come that we are rejected. And we're called to stand, to stand firm. The final way that Stephen is an image of his Savior is that he's glorified. Stephen, as he is dying, receives a vision. Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And if you read that paragraph again, you'll see a contrast, a deep and abiding contrast between what the crowds think of Stephen and what God thinks of Stephen. God is personally telling Stephen, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's why the heavens open. He is, God is telling Stephen that what Jesus tells the thief on the cross, soon you will be with me in paradise. We are not to see persecution as the world sees it, as a shaming ritual. Maybe you've been publicly shamed because you own Jesus Christ as your Lord. What God wants us to know from this passage, what Luke is teaching us is the shame of the world for the sake of righteousness results in the praise of God. God glorifies Stephen. And Stephen dies then like Jesus did for the joy set before him, enduring this stoning. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit knowing that God will do so. Stephen is glorified. That hint of the presence of God when his face shone like an angel is now fully realized for he dwells in heavenly places and he prays for the martyrs of this world and he along with the hosts of heaven beseeches God how long O Lord will you delay he is has been glorified he has received the same glory that Jesus himself received he has been received at the right hand of God. He has received everything that Jesus promises his faithful servants. This is the pattern that we are called to remember. It's the encouragement in the midst of persecution, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of trial. It's the encouragement that we are to remember as the people of God that this momentary affliction is preparing for us 
a storehouse of glory. Because through these things, we have become participants not only in the suffering of Jesus Christ, but his after these things glory, his, his subsequent glory belongs to us as well. So in the same way that Stephen suffers as Christ suffered, dies as he died, he is glorified with Christ's own glorification. He dwells in heaven. He is in the presence of his faithful Father. He worships Christ who sits at the right hand of God. There's great call in this passage and a great encouragement to us. The call here, if you're a Christian, is to remember the life that Jesus lived and to follow his example. Why is Stephen so important? Because in Stephen's story, we find what it looks like for an average, normal, human Christian to take up his cross and follow his Savior. We get an intimate picture of the fullness of what it means to die for faith that others might be blessed. That's what Christ did for us. He did it for us paradigmatically. He did it for us above all things. He is the ultimate Savior. He is uh, the work that Christ did is irreplaceable. And yet, we are called to take up our cross and follow after our Savior. We are called to be imitators of Christ. And what the Stephen story gives us is a kind of pattern of what that looks like personally. Stephen is the first martyr. And he's the first martyr who receives the glory from his martyrdom. And as a result, Stephen is for us an example to follow. As we follow Stephen, we follow Christ. As we are imitators of Stephen or Daniel or the martyrs of ages past, we follow Christ. And so these stories are given to us to remind us that this is how normal people follow their Lord and Savior You are empowered by the Spirit to endure to the end, even if the end is suffering for the sake of another. Or maybe you've never been presented with the claims of Christ. Maybe this is your first time to hear that Jesus is Lord, that He is returning, that He has claims upon us as as His creation, as His people, that God has set Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It is a call. Do not reject the words of the prophets. Do not be like those who always stumble and fall, who always reject the word. There is a call here for you to come to Christ, to receive him as Savior and Lord, to, to, to no longer be one who rejects, but one who receives and welcomes Christ and his lordship over our lives. And you may be looking at this passage, whether you're a Christian or whether you're just now considering the claims of Christ, you may be looking at the passage and say, but it didn't work. Stephen's speech didn't do what it was supposed to do. The people didn't repent. They didn't turn aside. They didn't follow after God. It wasn't persuasive. That last little line, Saul approved of his execution. In a couple of chapters... Saul is going to reconsider this moment. And he is forever going to look back upon himself and he's going to see in his old sinful self 
a persecutor of Christ's church. And surely this event is in his head. You know, where did Luke get this story anyway? How did Luke know what happened to Stephen? He wasn't there. He wasn't an eyewitness of this event as far as we know. It's not written in his style. The most likely candidate, we don't know this for sure, but the most likely candidate is Paul gave it to him. Paul told him what happened. That seed has been planted. You, Paul, always rejected, along with your forefathers, the authority of the chosen one, the one appointed by God. And in just a short bit of time, Paul will bow the knee. He will bow the knee and he will see the one whom he once cursed and persecuted as his own Savior and Lord. Brothers and sisters, as we suffer for Christ, as we, as we, exemplify, as we exemplify him in the service we offer, in the words that we say, in the way in which we willingly accept the rejection of the world, in the hope of the glory to come, when we, like Stephen, image our Savior, the gospel is proclaimed. It goes forth, and it bears fruit to the ends of the earth. Let's pray.